Welcome to Broadway's Backbone with Brad Bradley, a podcast dedicated to the men and women of the ensemble, the chorus of dancers, singers, and actors that are the foundation of every Broadway musical. These often unsung gypsies are the hardest working people on the boards and are, well, Broadway's backbone. Welcome to episode 91. My guest is Katie Huffman. Hello. Welcome, Katie Huffman, to Broadway's Backman. How are you? Hi, Brad Bradley. I am great now that I'm looking at your adorable face and talking to you. Well, what the heck? Thank you very much. <laughs> so you're, it's currently in the middle of the pandemic and you are up in Connecticut. I am. I tell you, the solitude. Oh, the Bronx was very solitary. You know, what I loved about it was how quiet it was. And then when the pandemic hit, I didn't even have a view of the street. You know, I just have the view of the backs of buildings. And, you know, it was like, oh, okay, I can't, I can't do this for nine more months. So nine months was my limit. And I could sell the apartment for more than I could buy a house for in Connecticut. So I moved. And I love it. And you're close enough. A fellow friend of ours, the dear Gary Beach, always said when he left New York, he was like, my phone's going to ring anywhere I am, so it doesn't matter. If you want me, they can find me. If there was ever anyone to listen to, it was Gary Beach. I don't know anyone else who's more gracious and grateful for what he has. God, he was the best. The best. And actually someone uh, quoted saying that you are similar to Gary Beach in the fact that you always let a person feel that they're seen and that you matter. Oh, my God. That makes me cry because I tell you, I mean, Gary was sort of the person I went to because as you can imagine, the producers was quite a whirlwind and I could, you know, being the only woman was sometimes a lot of pressure, you know, and to be in white spandex every day. And I would go up to his room and just cry and he would just let me so... Thank you. Thank you. That's a huge compliment. Well, I mean, I can vouch for the fact that I also think that's true. The last time I saw you, you were hosting a benefit for Dancers for Good, and I hadn't seen you in a really long time. You came up to me and asked me how I was, and I was a little thrown because I could tell that you were actually asking me. And and I hesitated, and you grabbed my hands and said, Brad, you're going to be okay. I'm going to be okay. We're all going to be okay. Take a breath. I said that? Yes. And, wow. you, and I was going through something difficult, but I wasn't going to say it. I don't know what I was going to say, but you just knew. Oh. And I was, I'll always remember that because at that moment I was like, well, here's a established Tony winner in my presence who I know that is saying, I'm struggling too. We're going to be okay. We'll get through this. And it lasted in my heart for months. And that was over a year ago, almost two years ago. And I still remember that. So, wow. Well, thank you for reminding me. You didn't get me all weepy. I hope I run into that lady when I need her. You know? <laughs> oh, man. Uh, also, we're talking about reinvention. And that's when you said, you know what? Sometimes you've got to take your life and your career in your own hands. And you started talking about your Peggy Lee project, which was getting ready to go to Greenman 42. How was that and that journey? And where did that come into your life? Well, I have this good, great friend, um, Will Nunziata, who is an up-and-coming director. And, you know, I'm going to say it right out loud. I gave him his break. So there you go. (laughs) But we're still very close. and We love creating things together. And he called and said, hey, reason, do you want to, I keep on thinking about you and Peggy Lee. And I said, well, I have a big old poster of her in my living room. Like, I'm a huge fan. So we started thinking about... Peggy Lee and what she might what she might want to do if she came back and did a show and we had the privilege of speaking with her granddaughter who uh, runs the estate and 
we got to meet with like the guy who runs the estate of Frank Sinatra and the guy who runs the estate of Nat King Cole. So it was like as close to having lunch with the three of them as we could ever get. And we came up with this concept of what would she want to say? You know, she was a woman in a man's world, definitely in the you know, 40s, 50s, 60s, 70s, 80s, whatever it was. You know, she was born in 1928 in the middle of nowhere, North Dakota nowhere, you know, like just no indoor plumbing, no nothing. And under, you know, challenging, her mom died when she was little and this stepmom who was a little bit cruel. But I just find her, the message that she really wanted to put forth was one of spirituality and love and, you know, to hear the people who knew her talk about her she would make you feel as though you're the only person in the room no matter who you were you know just if you were a fan she would hold your hand and listen and actually if you watch her on those old youtubes even with big stars like Julie Andrews you see her just connect with them and support them you know she's usually singing the alto the uh, you know the the harmony line and she just is so grooving with whoever she's with you know she used to light candles and and chant and you know do all these things that are kind of just what we do now is you know pray meditate but she was well before her time she was beloved by musicians she had a harder time with like people producing and and stuff like that. But I think a lot of it was because she was a woman, you know, in a man's world. So harder for her to get work. But then she had friends like Frank Sinatra who would just say, you need work, I'll get you work. So we decided what she, what does she want to say? And we, um, we said it as best we could, which was try to get her positive message that comes through her struggles. We all learn and grow from those times when we really push down, right? Like it's from the mud that the lily grows, you know, it's, there's something so human to relate, relate to and in her music and her love affairs and in her lyrics, you know, because she did write a lot of music and lyrics as well as be a great singer. And the people she loved, you know, she loved Billie Holiday and so full of love. And I think it was a, a hard, not always easy to get that across because of circumstances. And, you know, as I said, we learn from our adversity. No, I definitely agree. I feel like sometimes I've learned more from my failures than I have from my successes. You have to really dig in deep to figure out why something failed. Yeah. And even my success, my biggest successes have coincided with some of the worst times in my life. You know, so you have the highest high and the lowest low happening simultaneously. It's like, well, how do I appreciate all of it? Appreciate just all of it. Do you think that the struggle that women have had has improved or do you think it's a lot of talk saying it has and a lot of like awareness, but the forward movement hasn't really taken place? Well, I certainly think there's some, and there's certainly women in positions of power, which, you know, women with their own production companies. You know, I was always a tomboy, very outspoken, and it was always kind of a surprise when someone came back at me with something sexist or demeaning or degrading or, you know, I'm like, what? Because I grew up with two older brothers. They respect me. I, I trust them more than anybody else in the whole wide world. And I was surprised when people treated me that way. And in this business to find out that even the people you, you truly love can think less of you than one deserves. But I think it's getting better. I think it's we're at a very awkward stage. You know, the pendulum swings. And once anyone is learning how to bring forth their voice, 
when they, they felt they had no voice, it's awkward. It comes out not perfectly. So women are finding their voices. Some women have them. Uh, I think the biggest trick all women need to learn is that we're just stronger together if we are supportive of each other. Because I can certainly look back at my childhood and you know younger days where women were really against other women, including me, which has never made any sense to me. You know, I think it's a cultural thing. You know, we have our biggest shows or reality series where women are slapping each other and throwing drinks in their faces. You know, right. it's like. That infuriates me. That's seen as success. You know, that those women are successful in our culture is really disappointing to me, you know. And of course, there's people like Shonda Rhimes, who's behind the, you know, most people don't know what she looks like, but she sure is successful. Right. So, you know, you don't have to slap another woman down to build yourself up. And I, I don't think you can put anybody down to build yourself up. You're always going to be left with, you know, a dark place in yourself that you will have to constantly live with and, and try to overcome. Like that's the hard for hard part for me to come overcome is if I ever do anything shitty to somebody, you know, if I'm kind and good, then I can sleep at night. If I'm not, not only do I feel like I have to fix it, I also have to justify it, right? Like justifying bad actions can be really damaging to everyone around. If I can just admit if when I do something insensitive or God, right now we're learning so much about the women's movement, about the race movement, everything. I make mistakes. I just do. I'm an American. I make mistakes. So if I can just say, Lordy, I made a mistake. Tell me what I need to do. But I don't think people realize how strong and brave it is to admit failure or admit, admit making a mistake and asking for help. People find that as weakness when that type of vulnerability is strength. I agree. And that's, you know, what we see in politics right now is people really believing that bluster is strength. And I think it's vulnerability. That's our biggest strength. Truly love is our biggest strength. I've been listening a lot to like John Lewis, what he said, you know, reading Martin Luther King and even Malcolm X and about you know, the movement was about love. And it was hard for people to believe that that would work. But Martin Luther King was all about love. And it means it's hard <laughs> because I want to fight. Yeah. I want to fight my favorite people if they lose their temper. You know, I want to fight. But I have to realize, nope, that is not my strength. My strength is if I stay in my loving bits. Well, it is Women's History Month. Every month should be Women's History Month. It is. It is, Brad Bradley. It is. This month, you're doing something special for Women's History Month. You're directing an original piece for the Actors Fund, written by Rochelle Rack, and it's uh, on the 25th. The Actors Fund, some of the money will also go to the Women's Health Initiative. You're directing and you're Zoom directing. So tell me about this project. Oh, man. Well, what about Rack? I mean, come on. I'm incredibly excited. I mean, Rochelle is a dynamo who knew she could write, you know, certainly not I, I don't think she did, but she got, when she gets, I always say when she gets a bug up her rump, but anyway, when she gets like excited about something, she runs with it, you know? So she had this idea to write about the women on Broadway who weren't necessarily the stars, but who, you know, you and I and the people in our community and the the true fans of Broadway know who these women are. And she wrote a piece that was kind of a discombobulated and, you know, you can see what might be in there. So we started doing readings and I read one of the parts a few times and then 
she and I started talking about notes and, you know, putting it into some sort of a shape that made more sense. And then I, she said, would you direct it, not do one of the roles, just direct it. And I said, absolutely. You know, let's do it. Let's, let's do something good. Let's do something good for other women. And I think this show, which sort of takes place on a television set in a talk show kind of format is six women supporting each other and a newbie, you know, a youngster kind of learning about Broadway and how freaking hard it is to do eight a week and survive and continue and to grow older and all those things. And then each of these women, we're doing like a 50 minute presentation of the piece. So several songs, which are fantastic. And you'll get a real good idea of these six characters, but there are more characters ultimately. You know, she made it happen. She just made it happen. So we are in the middle of editing. Marty Thomas is this genius editor. I had this, I mean, I've been an actor in a couple of these Zoom kind of, you know, virtual and remote things that are going on out there. And I've seen what works. I've seen what doesn't work. It's been a year. You know, we've been doing this for a year now. So I kind of just jumped in and, you know, directed each of my women remotely in their living rooms and tried to make it make sense. So we shall see. But I think it's going to be fantastic. The women are just great. People have been figuring this out. Thank God. You know, as, as the director, I'm, I get the privilege of just allowing people to do their work. Right. You know, and organize it. Like I organize the work, but there are really people have already figured out to, you know, Stephen Jamail has already has recorded the music beforehand. So my women are lip, lip syncing when I'm shooting them. And then we can alter sort of the acting moments a bit within that. And then I'm trying to, you know, have the six women do a scene of six people speaking to each other, but nobody's in the room together. So I'm reading all the parts. <laughs> like, oh my God, I'm trying to remember how the actresses said their lines. Right. Just the same rhythm, not rush. And, you know, so I was the exhausted one doing all the, you know, and trying not to act too much, just trying to, you know, keep my focus on on directing yeah so it's been interesting and I but I think Marty will make me look good you know Marty knows how to how to edit and what we can do we have images behind the women that sort of help tell the story of their songs because you know they are shot in these boxes but the boxes can become squares circles ovals, different, you know, finishes, they can look, you know, they can sort of blend into the background or they can be sharp. So there's a lot of stuff going on. There's a lot of stuff and it's very exciting. Well, it's between you and Rack, it's examples of women being forward moving, taking things into their own hands, whether it's writing a project, whether it's Peggy Lee, I just think it's inspiring. I'm looking forward to it. I know about half the cast of the six and they're phenomenal. And then I know you and Rack. So there's course i'll be there good good yeah, yeah. tell your friends, tell yeah, your friends. i'm excited like just to see new work you know yeah and to, and to talk about the actors fund i mean they're very busy right now because we are all struggling yes you know, i have been on the phone with them talking about health coverage and you know other things it's like what the heck so they they need the funds they've traditionally been a fantastic organization. And then the Phyllis Newman Women's Health Initiative, you know, Phyllis Newman, who was married to Adolf Green, who was a great actress herself. She saw where our health industry lacked for women. So she started this initiative. So it's just perfect. It's just all coming together 
perfectly during what is it women's awareness month is what do we call it it might be women's history month but for the actors fund the one of the reasons i'm able to go back i went back to school they gave me a grant for continuing education for dancers they also yeah. gave me a grant to help me my first two months with my mortgage i yeah. love them i mean that was like t- twice they helped me within this pandemic for two different reasons and it was it was a lot of paperwork but once i did the paperwork it was an easy process you know, yeah. so they will approve you. You just have to go through doing you know, it. They're so sweet too. They're like, hi, yes. Uh, you just call me, you know, I wouldn't work this out. I'll tell you, this is what I know. Like, oh my God, you're the sweetest people. Sweetest people. Well, I want to read through some of your credits, which are incredible. Oh. They are on Broadway, LaCasha Full, Big Deal, The Will Rogers Folly, which was your first Tony nomination, Steel Pier. Dame Edna, The Royal Tour, The Producers, where you won the 2001 Tony Award for Best Featured Actress in a Musical, Plain and Fancy, and The Nance. TV and film credits include Curb Your Enthusiasm, The Good Wife, both of which you had a character arc on, Blue Bloods, Law and Order, After Forever, Frasier, and numerous other short films. And this, I just, it's a funny title. Billy's dad is a fudge packer. I just, yeah. I just want to say that some of the titles of people's credits are hysterical. That one. Hilarious. I, I also have the itty bitty titty committee. So you, you didn't even mention that one. Oh, I did not but, see that. The itty bitty titty committee. Uh, yeah, I did um, something called Boobs Musical. Yeah, at the triad. There you go. At the triad. Well, you know, awesome. You mentioned <laughs> Katie did because I have my own web series too that I've created. Katie no. Did. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So that's out there on YouTube. It actually came out right around now, last year, and then the world shut down. My producing partner, Jason Chichi, and I created a a web series starring me and Deanne Cock, and she is, oh my God. You know, I hope we can get nominations just because she should win everything. She's so freaking funny on this thing. Oh, that's great. So it's called Katie Did? Katie Did, yeah. Great. Where are you from and how did you get started? I am originally born and raised in Santa Barbara, California, the hard scrabble streets of Santa Barbara. Apparently, I just came out singing and dancing. You know, my mother, she too had, you know, was a singer and dancer, but she never pushed. She said, I just absolutely came out wanting to do this. I begged and begged and begged for ballet lessons. And then finally at seven, she found the right teachers who I still am in touch with. They're in their 80s and 90s now, this married couple, the Hamlins. And I studied ballet with them and they really changed my world. And then Mrs. Dolis, who I started studying classical voice when I was nine. When I see performers without technique, it really breaks my heart. It's like, oh my God, it's so much easier in acting, singing, and dancing, if you have some sort of technique to fall back on, as I'm sure you know, because you have tons of dance technique, as far as I could see. So these people in my hometown really took me under their wing and just encouraged me and told me I could, you know, told me I could do it. So I did it all my childhood, first acting workshop when I was six, and then, you know, ballet was the big thing for me, ballet and opera. Then when I was, I just turned 18, Bud Bottoms in Santa Barbara, who has these sons who are all actors. He said, Katie, the boys are doing a play down in Los Angeles. You should go down and audition. So I did. I went down to this little mansion in Beverly Hills and and sang my two songs. I think as anything goes, and if I loved you, 
And I got my first equity gig, like straight out of, you know, I just turned 18 years old, did it with the Bottoms Boys, toured in Santa Barbara and Los Angeles at the La Mirada Civic Light Opera. Herb Rogers gave me my equity card and I am still very close with all of his sons and his son, Stephen is one of my very best friends. And I got to brag a little bit, but he wrote I, Tanya. So he's been a screenwriter for several years and been very successful, but now he's producing and and getting lots of the the recognition he deserves. So anyway, all from back from Bud Bottoms. May he rest in peace. Yes. Well, I'm a Southern California person as well, but San Diego, but La Mirada. And I actually, uh, one of my first equity jobs was Santa Barbara Civic Light Opera. Really? Yeah, the Granada Theater. I love that theater. That's where my first, that's my first Nutcracker was, was at the Granada. Oh, wow. I just loved it. It It's just a beautiful place. Yeah. I I tell you, I mean, I can complain. Believe me, I can complain about anything, but I shouldn't. Because growing up in Santa Barbara, whether we had money or not, which we did not, I was still in Santa Barbara, California. (laughs) You know, it's like, wow. I get it. I get it. It's an awesome place to grow up. So you made your Broadway debut in La Caja Full. I did. And you played a drag queen. <laughs> I was a teenage drag queen. I was indeed. Yes. <laughs> I was one of the Cajel because back then, two of the women, two of the Cajels were women. And I was one of them. Isn't it crazy how much happens when you're a teenager? <laughs> so much happens. Yes. You know, I got my equity card. I auditioned. I turned 19 in rehearsals for... Lacage and I did the uh, we did it in San Francisco during Gay Pride Week down at the Golden Gate Theater and we had like Sylvester hosted our opening party and I mean I was my eyes were just learning 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 just surrounded by this new world and fell in love I mean those people are still my family absolutely my family and went through of course the AIDS crisis with them I mean we would dress up we were all dressed as women in these exaggerated wigs and makeup and the audience in 1984 was when I started on the tour in 85 I went into the Broadway show but I tell you the audience was different back then we would turn we would parade around and they would marvel at all these beautiful women we would settle and sing and the audience would gasp like they could not believe it was men they could not believe it was men, which doesn't happen anymore, you know? But yeah. back then, it was what big, <gasps> we are what we are. It's like, oh, yeah, it was it was huge. It was huge. And the, the men that I met doing that, um, you know, they started the Easter Bonnet competition during that show. It's a bunch of activists. It's a bunch of, you know, we lost a lot of people. God, just a lot of people. Dealing with that at 19 years old, your Broadway debut, your national tour debut, but also dealing with another epidemic and pandemic. And again, it's one of those simultaneous moments, right? Where I'm getting my Broadway debut and I'm going to the hospital constantly to see friends who are passing away. And, you know, all the misinformation, all the uh, shame, which still you know, to this day, it's attached to AIDS. But yeah, it was quite tragic. And again, so much came from, you know, Broadway Cares and Equity Fights AIDS came from that pandemic. I was there at the first Easter Bonnet competition. I was there at the first Broadway Bears when I did the Will Rogers Follies with Jerry Mitchell being that great advocate and great person that he is. So I I was constantly surrounded by people who, you know, we had to make it happen for our, our friends because there wasn't the support from 
Washington, certainly, it was a bunch of gay men who were dying. So there wasn't the kind of outrage. So they did it themselves. And I was one of the women, hopefully doing some sort of support and just, you know, saying goodbye to people. And I tell you, you get sort of used to death, but grief is weird, man. Like I, I've had lost so many people and sometimes I can be the strong one and get through it and hold your hand. And then sometimes it just takes me over and, you know, I just sob and, and grieve, but I'm really hopeful. You know, my friends were dying of that disease and the young men and women now are living with it. Yeah. You know, they found a way to live with it. So hopefully somebody will come up with a vaccine for that one next. Exactly. So yep. your next big thing in your life was Bob Fosse and big deal. I jokingly wrote that that's a big deal. That's like a huge big deal. I know music from that show, but how did big deal come into your life and Bob Fosse and that experience? Yeah, what the heck, right? <laughs> <laughs> What? Yeah. I mean, I saw all that jazz when I was 14. I was on a little date at the Granada Theater, by the way. Ooh. And back then, the Granada had this balcony that had these little two-seaters with little, like, they were little private two-seaters. So you sat in these little hmm, cozy places. And I was watching this with my, my date, Andy Fuller, who's still a friend of mine. And there's Sandal Bergman ripping off her top and, you know, dancing around. And I'm, you know, my eyes are huge just watching, taking it in. And he looks at me and goes, would you do that? He's like, yeah. <laughs> so, of course, I was a fan. I mean, Santa Barbara got a lot of tours through it. So I'd seen the original Chicago and I'd seen, gone down to Los Angeles to see the original Pippin. He was just everything. So when I came to New York to do Lacage, actually, there was almost immediately auditions to do Big Deal. And somebody said, oh, don't bother going. It's going to be an all black show. I'm like, I don't care if it's going to be an all purple show. I'm going to dance for Bob Fosse. I wore a pink leotard and tights. Like I was such a ballerina back then and kept on making the cuts. And I, I, I mean, truly, to this day, there's been nobody like him. When you watch all that jazz and he, him, how he treated everyone at the audition, that's exactly what he did. He would break you down into groups. And as the group danced, he would come up to every single dancer and say, yes, please stay. Or I'm sorry, it's not going to happen this time, but good job. Yes, please stay. You know, I mean, it was amazing. And I kept on making the cut. And then I got the news that I was going to be dancing for Bob Fosse, which was... <laughs> I felt so sad to leave Lacage because they're my family, but I had to dance for Bob Fosse. Oh. I just had to. I had to. And it was, of course, life changing. How soon from Big Deal did Will Rogers Follies come into? I think it was five years. Oh, okay. Yeah. I had, I got cast in a couple of chorus, you know, in the chorus of a couple of Broadway shows in that time. And I turned them down. Wow. I didn't want to do it. You know, I remember there was one show particularly where they asked me to be in the chorus, not even as a dancer, as a singer, and they wouldn't offer me an understudy. 
And I was kind of like, I just don't know. I don't even know how to do a show anymore if I'm not at least an understudy. Like I can't, I, I don't know what that is. So I, I said no. I made a lot of commercials during that time. I mean, blonde hair, blue eye was a winning combo back then. And I made a lot of commercials. So I was making money. I took myself to London to the Royal Academy of Dramatic Art. You know, I really had a, a chance to hone more of my acting skills and more of my skills in front of a camera. So that's what I did for those five years. And then I literally one audition for Tommy Toon and the rest of them. And I got, I remember what I wore. I wore something that I had bought in Europe, you know, when I was, when I was at school in Europe and Tommy and Adolf, Betty Comden and Peter Stone, they were all sold. They, they were like, that's the one. Cy Coleman, who I'd already worked for in another show, said, I'm not sure she could belt. So I had to go to his office and prove that I could belt. And, you know, his office was his home. That was just, you know, it was just crazy music everywhere. He sort of cleared off a spot, put handwritten sheet music in front of me of, of Willamania. And he said, can you sight read? I said, sure. So we started sight reading. And say, okay, now I want you to sing it like Ethel Merman. So I started doing, well, uh, man, yeah, like fully my best Ethel Merman imitation. And he said, what are you doing? I don't want you to sing it like Ethel Merman. I just want you to belt. <laughs> okay, well, why didn't you say so? Uh, yeah, and then I got that show and had the extraordinary advantage and privilege to audition other people. Like I got to audition all the Betty Blakes. They, they read with me on stage. So I got to see other women more experienced than I auditioning and learned a lot that way. And then found myself in this workshop, not thinking, you know, I'm just thinking I'm a glorified showgirl in this. And I met one of my very best friends, Dick Latessa, and then we went into production and I got my first Tony nomination, which out of the freaking blue, like had no, none, was not expecting, didn't even know that the nominations were coming out. So, wow. That's amazing. And what was that first experience like doing all the Tony parties and that press? Was it overwhelming or was it exciting? I mean, I was 26 years old. So I had too much energy for everything. You know, I could just go, go, go. So it was a ball and a blast. And the women were a blast. And Dee and Dick and Keith were such a fun group to hang out with. Like, you know, they were the grown-ups. So they were sort of holding my hand and taking me around. We went to the Grammys. We went to, you know, we were just doing like everything that was fun. I think I was present, you know, I understood what was going on and I, and I appreciated it as far as a 26 year old who was not expecting anything could, which is, you know, it's good. I didn't get in my own way. Then 10 years later during the producers, I could experience it, it on a different level because I had already had that experience. But yeah, I had a, I had a ball. I got you know I got to wear a Bob Mackie gown to uh, to the Tonys, and I got put in the National Enquirer in that gown. And I got to meet Walter Cronkite, who was you know an idol who I really had wished was my father growing up. It was a ball. We met a lot of presidents, and it was good. It was a good time. Some of the roles you're most known for, most famous for, are very glamorous women. How did you handle? 
being kind of ogled and sexualized. And I think part of Broadway and part of roles, women are put on that certain pedestal and that's unfortunately part of the job. Did you feel like it was affecting you personally and with your body image? You know, you mentioned Ula always in spandex. I mean, how did you deal with a type of pressure put on people to be a certain way, size, look, color, everything? Yeah. I mean, I was very fortunate. You know, I was tall, blonde, pretty. It didn't take me much effort to stay thin because I was dancing eight hours a day, doing eight shows a week. So I'll say it was fun. And I and I think women should be appreciated for their beauty. And all women are beautiful and their bodies are beautiful. And I want women, all women to know that. At that time, I did not find, think that I was beautiful. I really thought I have to create this character you know she I can create this illusion of her but I was very hard on myself and my physical appearance I was surrounded by these women who I thought were extraordinary and perfect looking but yeah that idea of perfection is so damaging it's just so damaging it's not real you know it's just not real I realized looking back I was an athlete I was a ballet dancer I was very muscular and, and graceful and truly that's not what every man likes <laughs> you know? it's like, and when you meet uh, you know really big models who are so painfully skinny uh, that's not what really a lot of men like a little meat on them and you know love a big girl and you know they men are not nearly as hard on us as uh, other women and as show business Yes. I mean, there I was. I mean, I was a size six and I was always being told to lose weight. And I'm like, I look at pictures of me back then and like, how dare you tell that girl she needs to lose weight? And of course, I took it very personally back then and always felt fat and always felt terrible. And I look back and go, Jesus, Katie, you should have been taking your clothes off constantly. You know, you should just have been naked all the time and gotten pictures taken because it's never going to be like that again. And now, and I'm in middle-aged and I have a little, some pounds on me, I'm much more comfortable in my body than I ever was when I actually was that. But yeah, I, I remember sitting in, particularly in LA, sitting in audition lobbies and uh, there was a big discrepancy. And I'll say particularly white women were expected to be so skinny that you could see their hip bones. You know, that's, that's the kind of skinny we were expected to be back then. I never was that, but I certainly was never heavy. But yeah, I think there's, um, I'll take a leap and tell you that what struck me was that some of the men in charge in Hollywood like weak women. I don't know any of those women, but the appearance of weakness, of insecurity, of starving yourself, there was something to, you know, controlling. There was something to that. And I'm not saying across the board, obviously, but I could see there was something insidious going on, you know, and now that you hear about what Harvey Weinstein thought he could get away with and other people, it's like, mm, that's kind of what I, women are smaller than men, yeah. naturally smaller than men. And to want to be so, it's an illness. It's an illness. And as I've heard other, particularly mothers say, we need to build a better son. We need to help our men be 
great men and really be compassionate and again back to the loving thing you know and know that being loving is your strength and believe me women will respond to a loving man anyway I don't know what that came in but I, I think that women should be celebrated for their bodies because we are beautiful and I think we should not be judged and people say awful things but you know when hurt people hurt people right so Anybody on the internet who's putting vitriol out there has to be a self-hater. You know, there's just no way if you're fine with yourself that you're saying that stuff. So I pray for those people that they understand, that they find their own self-love. And I mean, it's certainly hard on the person being ridiculed. I can have compassion for somebody who feels like they need to do that. They need to be mean or be critical of others. I don't know. I'm going off track. So don't no, use not going off track. Don't use all that. At all. <laughs> At all. You and I got to meet on Steel Pier, which was my Broadway debut. You were the standby for the two stars, uh, Deborah Monk and Karen Ziemba. And I would watch you in understudy rehearsals and you were amazing. You never got to go on and the show didn't really last. How is that to be such an important part of a show, but also in many ways, very invisible because they have to have you, but they also don't want to have to give you any focus. <laughs> I don't think I even had any, any costumes. I, I had shoes. I know that. I know I had some shoes. And then there were a couple of rejects from each of the women that they fit onto my body. It was great. You know, I like, I, I needed to come back to New York and I, I want, you know, Vinnie Liff said, I was living in San Diego, which you're, I was lived in Lucadia, just so you know. I lived there. Oh, okay. When yeah. I first got married, I lived in Lucadia for about five and a half years. And Vinny, I was, you know, I was just subsisting in LA. I just really, I was working, but it, I was not terribly happy. And Vinny calls me and says, hey, I want you to fly yourself to New York and audition to be the standby for Karen Ziemba and Ben Monk. And I would already been nominated for a Tony Award at this point. And I was like, I'll be right there. <laughs> I will do it. I will be right there. So I did fly myself out there and audition and they did offer it to me pretty much on the spot, which was nice. It was Susan Strollman and Scott Ellis and of course, Candor Neb, which was come on. So yeah, it was interesting. It was interesting because I'm a terrible understudy. You know, I'm a, like the worst. Like for me to try to emulate what somebody else is doing is nearly impossible. I don't think I'm a great understudy. Thank God I never had to go on, but I got to uh, bond with the other standby and got to be in rehearsal with so many great people, you know, because you get to be in those understudy rehearsals, which are so ridiculous, you know. I decided not just to play my parts. I would play any role that wasn't present. I would just jump in and play that one too. So I was having fun. I was always late calling in. You know, I had a beeper and I had to call in by 730 and I was never near a phone at 7.30, you know, the, the stage manager was like, yes, I know it's Katie because you're three minutes late, you know, like always, <laughs> or I'd bump into somebody I knew and I'd be like, oh, shoot, I gotta go make a phone call. <laughs> yeah, I'm not, I'm not a great understudy, but it was very fun. And I got to meet all of you and see, and I truly think that that was some of Susan's greatest choreography. I, I mean, completely agree. the fact that she didn't win a Tony award that year, I was like, uh, no, <laughs> I guess she deserves this Tony Award. 
the show itself, yeah, what you know, I, I loved everybody in it and everybody was so great. They could never quite get their act together. I loved it. I, I loved doing it. But you know, idle hands of the devil's workshop. So I, I got I got in a bit of trouble too doing that show. <laughs> but you mentioned two names that later came into your life. Again, uh, Susan Stroman and Vinnie Liff. One of the next big things is the producers. Yeah. Uh, Vinnie Liff does I love that he called you in, in San Diego. Did the, did he cast the producers as well? Yeah, it was another one. I was living in Jersey City, New Jersey at this point. And he says, Katie, get anything you have together from your press for the Will Rogers Follies and bring it to me right now. So back then you had to physically bring things. You know, there was no internet. So I was stuffing a manila envelope with pictures and press and I took it to his office. He's like, yeah, there are, you know, Mel Brooks and Susan Stroman. Mel has written a musical based on his movie producers and they're considering you to play the role of Ula. And at that point I'm 34 years old and thinking, hmm, dancing around in a bikini, <laughs> I'll figure it out. Cause the movie, she's 19 years old for crying out loud and she's dancing in a bikini. So I took my stuff in there and the next day he said, yeah, they'd like you to do this uh, reading. So the first, very first reading ever of this musical. We rehearsed for about four days. It was April 9th, 2000. It snowed in the morning and then it became this beautiful day. And we did two readings for backers. After the first reading, Rocco Landisman, who was uh, running to Jamston at the time, came up to Mel and offered him the St. James on the spot, right there. And then after the second reading, where Anne Bancroft was about three feet off my left knee, you know, <laughs> oh my God. And after the second one, Mel came up to me and said, kid, when it goes, you're in. And there we were, April 9th, 2000. By the next April, we were, you know, the biggest hit on Broadway and winning awards. <laughs> my, my, believe me, I was like unemployed. I didn't have an agent. It's all video. I had no agent. I had no nothing. I just moved back from California. You know, we were on strike for commercials. It was like a hard moment. And then there we were. And actually I was that year I produced a feature film because acting had just was just too hard. It was like I couldn't get any more jobs. And I produced a feature film in October and November, December, I was rehearsing for the producers. So it was just crazy. And you won the Tony Award. I, I just watched your speech again last <laughs> night. And it's just just so much joy. And you look like you could definitely wear a bikini. <laughs> about eight a week, isn't it, Brad? That we all, we get in some of our best shape. Well, we, re yeah, we really do. And we don't even mean to. You're like, how do you keep in shape? I was like, I do my show. Full yeah. <laughs> Let's keep working. I saw you in the show. I got to see it twice. I got to see it in previews before it, before it was hard to get a ticket. It was still $90. Uh, and I mean, it was amazing. I just love it. I thought you were wonderful and the Tony was so well-deserved. One thing that's interesting is that you assume once you win a Tony award, you're never going to struggle again in your life. You're made. So, Wouldn't that be nice? But I think for people, uh, when I was more of a novice, that's just kind of what other, when you're struggling in the business, you just look up to Tony winners and you're like, Oh, when I have a Tony, I'll never have to worry about this again. And that's just not true, is it? <laughs> <laughs> it's just not, it does not come with a million dollar prize. Uh, no, you gotta, you gotta keep up the hustle, but it's also, but it did change my life. Certainly. Yeah. I mean, it suddenly made me more of an actor. Uh, I got, you know, some movies and TV stuff and some sort of soap opera all from 
you know, the visibility of that show. But that was sort of uniquely the visibility of that show too. You know, now you see it with the Hamilton actors and actresses, you know, they, we know who they are because they're the biggest hit on Broadway right. and social media and everything else. And back then, yeah, we were, God, I mean, talk about September 11th and everything else. I mean, it was, it was a, a, an extraordinary time, but yeah, it does not make you financially independent to win a Tony Award. And, you know, you, I mean, I remember getting cast to star on Broadway and then the following Monday, never hearing from them again and then being uncast. I mean, it was like, there was a lot of stuff, a lot of terrible things that ha that happened in our business. Yes. And they happen no matter if you have an Academy Award or a Tony Award or an Emmy or anything else. Again, it is run by people who aren't always worried about how you feel. <laughs> it definitely helped and it, it continues to help. I am, you know, they can't, it happened. You know, I, it really did happen. And I didn't used to keep the Tony Award out. So, you know, I won it, I don't need to see it. And then something, that thing happened where I was cast and then uncast. I was like, I'm getting this thing out and I'm looking at her every single day. Like, <laughs> And I won that thing, I'm gonna look at her. And she's prominent in all my mantelpiece now. But yeah, you just have to keep going because also we age, you know, life goes on. Uh, we change. I'm not in my 30s anymore and uh, I can't kick my face. And, you know, all those things, life goes on, thank God. You know, I mean, I really, I love being in my 50s and I love being the old codger with the good stories, you know. <laughs> and it's like when I talk to these youngsters and they hear some of the things that I've done, some of the rooms I've been in, you know, it's extraordinary to me. Like I always say the story of my life is much more interesting than my life. You know, my life is pretty darn boring. But I've been in some fantastic rooms and had some extraordinary privilege uh, by way of this business and the, the fortune is being ready when the opportunity arose. You know, luck happens when preparation meets opportunity, right? So there's always that feeling like, oh, you got to be ready when it happens. Tony Award winner will always be attached to your name. They can't take it away. Yes. <laughs> And, and they shouldn't. Was that producer's ride just something that you never wanted to get off? Or was there also an added pressure? It was hard. I did it for two and a half years. My God, when Nathan and Matthew were in it, the constant pressure. There was, you know, it was awesome. And I could never sleep. Like, adrenaline was crazy for that whole year. I slept maybe three to five hours a night. But I would make myself lay down for eight hours, you know. Like, it was a constant i'd never been through anything like that not many people get that opportunity and it was also a time when you know my marriage was just starting to unravel so i'm dealing with what i thought of the love of my life was sort of unraveling and i'm in this big hit as i said you get to you get life just throws stuff at you they just life just gonna throw the kitchen sink at you and i just have to be willing to be grateful for everything you know, grateful for what I've learned, grateful for that moment and the people I've met and the things I've done. It's just awesome. It's just awesome. And it all feeds in, any artist knows, it all feeds into our art, right? The more experience, the more things good, bad, and different that we go through, the more we can bring to what we do. All we have is ourselves. That's it. 
Exactly. All I have is me. It's any different from anybody else. There's plenty of people who sing and dance and act and do all those things. The only thing I have is me. So I got to take it all with me wherever I go. Know that that's all informing this middle-aged version of Katie now is excited because there's a lot. I'm so much more aware that I don't know anything. You know, you just sort of gain an awareness of how little you know, except there's also so much more information uh, that's been input. I know I'm having a good time. I love it. I love life. I love meeting people. I love seeing them do and allowing them to do it and encouraging them to do it. And I get surprised and delighted constantly when I see people you know, really digging in like Rochelle on the show. Can't even tell you how I could give her one note. She would come back in a couple of hours having dealt with that note. Girl, yeah, she's something else. Yes. Well, you've created and sunk your teeth into a lot of amazing roles, but one role in particular, uh, what was your process to develop the role of Katie Huffman on Curb Your Enthusiasm? <laughs> <laughs> the, the Republican with OCD. Yeah, that was funny. Oh my God. I mean, really, we need an hour to talk about that show. It was maybe the funnest time I've ever had in show business. Really? Oh my God. The men who made that show, A, all sweethearts, all richer than Rich's creases. <laughs> they, all, they all came from Seinfeld to this tiny production on HBO. We literally shared one trailer with Larry David. Like everybody had this one trailer when we were on location. So it was a very intimate experience. I didn't have to learn any lines. It was all improv. And these men who did it, they just stood around giggling constantly. Like, what do you want to do? Would it be funny if you did that? Oh, I like that, Katie. Let me do that again. It was hilarious it was so fun i don't even mind that i hardly made a nickel doing it you know nobody was making more than a nickel larry wasn't making more than a nickel back then you know it was new and new territory it was awesome yeah i watched your republican scene so funny because just the thought of anyone having a framed picture of george bush in their dressing room is funny you know and no offense to him just like that's just that's just funny, but so interesting how that scene would hold up now. Cause I think a lot of people, like I don't know your personal politics, but I know a lot of people would be like, oh, if someone was Republican, I would not date them, which is totally what happens in your scene. Finds out you're Republican, it's over. You're not having sex anymore. And it's he just, it's a timely scene now. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Unfortunately, politics are going that way. Just, you know, dividing us rather than coming together. I, and at the time, I was neither a Republican nor a Democrat. I'm not thrilled with either party. But I tell you, people fixated on that. Are you really a Republican? Well, oh, can yeah. you have a question? Are you really a Republican? Life Katie Huffman, and then one of the first things it says is, Katie Huffman is a Republican. It's like the third or fourth thing that comes up when you put your name. It's like it's Tony, Award, Tony Award winner, producers, a Republican. Yeah, I know. Hilarious. Nobody's concerned that I have severe OCD in the show. But the fact that I'm a Republican is really... It was really something. And when you do a show like that, and it's sort of what inspired me to do, Katie did as well, because, you know, playing yourself and Larry playing himself as something that's not real. You know, we all get to see, uh, you know, Jerry Seinfeld and all those people come on to curb playing themselves in a heightened Larry David environment, you know. So it was really fun to be me and not be me at all. One of my favorite things about live theater, when something's recommended to me and I just say yes without 
researching it. That's what I did with the Nance. Someone had tickets and I said, you know what? Sure. I just went because I say yes to things, especially free theater tickets. And I was blown away. I always remember that play. And I like Nathan Lane, but that was the best thing I've ever seen him do. The whole thing in general, I thought was wonderful and poignant and unexpected. And you were wonderful in that show. How was that experience and doing an amazing kind of, it was a very uncomfortable play as well. Yeah, it was an extraordinary experience. It was a hard and wonderful evolution in rehearsals. Like, you know, when I did The Producers, literally the show didn't change from our very first public reading to opening night on Broadway. Like the show already existed. The only set that changed was a little bit of springtime for Hitler where Gary Beach had to keep on learning new. I was just a paper hanger, you know. He was the only one in a couple of people in this one section, but otherwise the show stayed pretty much the same. And I'd been in original, you know, musicals before and somebody's always crying, right? Somebody's number gets cut. Yeah, you know, we went through it in Steel Pier. There were so many changes. The Nance was a grueling experience that way. And I gotta tell you, dude, thank God I went through it with Nathan, who has the memory, his memory. He can remember every version of the play he's ever done. He had done several readings before that. So you're like, oh, there was that, you know, there was that one speech that you did that we liked at this point for blah, blah, blah. And Douglas, who is utterly willing to rewrite and get in there and Douglas Carter being, he said, yeah, I, I can't find it. He goes, <laughs> and Nathan goes, I have it in my bag. You know, he goes to his bag and pulls out this older version. I mean, it was amazing. It was very, I feel like it was an important play. It spoke to so many things that I was excited do. So I got to play Sylvie Sylvain, who was this well-known stripper in burlesque. So there's that, that thing that I'm used to, that you're used to when you're a performer, people see you as that one thing. You know, they see you on stage and they think that's who you are. So there I am playing this stripper who is lovely and sings a little bit and, you know, walks around with no clothes on. And then off stage, she's a communist and she's starting riots and stuff like she's she's getting up there with the signs and trying to change the world so for me it was the excitement of finally getting to do that to get to see a full-blown person on stage as opposed to just what you see on the stage you get to see them all be backstage and that was the john lee Beatty set really allowed and that was a whole new character for that piece and it, you know you could see backstage and on stage at the same time and you get the automat at the apartment and seeing that group of actors at the apartment and how Nathan's character was dealing with his own self-loathing. I mean, it was extraordinary, but it was a real process. It was a real process of putting that together. And thank God it was with that group of people because I think what we landed on was pretty special. I loved it. It's what I read a review of something of you where it gives you a wonderful review and then it has to say, oh, and it's very surprising because she's usually does all musicals. Why do people just assume, oh, if you are a musical theater actress or you have a Tony in musicals, you can't act. You can't do straight stuff. And they were like, surprising departure for her, but she was quite good. And I was like, why'd you have to put that first part? Just say she was good. Exactly. How about that? How about I'm an actor? And then how many times are we going to say, Meryl Streep can sing? It's like, yeah, Meryl Streep, even actors can sing. <laughs> you know, it's like, what do you think? Talented people are talented. 
The end. Yes. And we're put in such a box that we, we spend so much of our career fighting to get out of it. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Which is, you know, one reason way back when I, you know, I got injured doing Big Deal and the five years between Big Deal and the Will Rogers Follies was spent acting and going to RADA and learning all that stuff, you know, because yeah, we don't get that many opportunities as musical theater actors if we don't get that moment, which I was very fortunate to get in the producers. You know, I got that moment. Please, constantly. I mean, I can't even tell you how many times you get, oh, I had no idea you could sing so well. I'm like, really? Because I do musicals, you know? (laughs) (laughs) Or boy, you can really act. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's part of it. That's part of doing musicals, yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Believe me, when I'm doing a play, I'm kind of like, this is it? We just say words? Okay, that's easy. Well, I don't think people understand that we're not just one thing. Yeah, that's that's what it is. I mean, but I guess that's, can we equate it to any other business? I don't know. As I said, talented people are talented. Singers can sing. You know, I had one friend who was such a brilliant singer and he just had so many struggles because people saw him doing this one thing and he could sing anything. Like singers can sing, give give them a try, you know, just let them show you he can do this. Well, I also don't think people realize what this pandemic has done to our industry. It's extraordinary. I mean, thank God for unemployment. That's the first time I've been on unemployment in probably a decade or so. Like, okay, okay. And then just keeping creative, turning this experience into something creative. As an actor, you're going to be full. You're going to be, I have a new experience to share with you. This is, my audience is going to get all this. Yes. I've got to do this during the pandemic. I mean, it's so true. I'm definitely, I think, a better actor for what I've gone through personally and emotionally this past year. Yeah. I think we're all better for it as hard as it was. I mean, it, again, it goes back to that the lilies grow out of the mud, you know, it's, you can either wait for this thing to end and fight it the whole way or accept it. And I mean, I have found it kind of an extraordinary experience, a hard experience, a sad experience, but I've connected with people and done my best, which sometimes didn't feel like enough. But, you know, this is what we have. And thank God the industry we're in is full of supportive people. I mean, even before the pandemic, I think the creativity of new web series and things like Katie did. How is that whole new world? I loved you on the series After Forever, and you were great. You sang on that. Having a product that you're working on that isn't produced by a studio and having that type of backing. How is that whole new world of creativity? Humbling. You know, I have 302 investors in our Indiegogo campaign to make Katie hit. Well, that's humbling. Right. It's like, wow, thank you. You know, it makes you want to do your best. You know, and when young people ask me, how do you do it? It's like, you do it. You can do it. And again, the cream will rise to the top. But just start shooting your friends, start writing something, start having an idea and do it. And it's not easy. And I have self-doubt constantly. And then somebody like Kevin Spiritus comes along and says, hey, will you play this part, you know, for $75 a day or whatever it was. Yeah, sure. Let's do it. Let's make a web series. Now the web series has six or seven Emmy awards and I have two Emmy nominations. It's like, what? What are you talking about? I was just doing a paper. You know, 
I've had enough experiences that we can talk about, you know, leaping from Lacage to Will Rogers to the producers. Ordinary leaps have to happen over those years. Many have had to remember me from seeing me in the Will Rogers Follies. I never auditioned for him. I could never get in the door at Johnson and Lyft to audition ever. And all those years later, he made me fly yourself to New York to audition to be the standby. And I was like, I didn't even know if anyone knew who I was. So it's like, do your best, put it out there. And it is not in your hands. It is just not in your hands. My life is utterly surprising. I have not planned all of this. So how do you deal with self-doubt? Oof. You know, I guess like everybody else, I, I torture myself and then I call somebody I trust. I have a really strong support system. I'm on daily Zoom meeting with groups of friends and I read spiritual texts that help me and I meditate and really try to allow, accept life as it is, allow it to happen. And when I start getting up again, which pretty much every day, I make another phone call. You know, it is a constant one day at a time work to stay well and on top of it and knowing you can do something and saying yes, as you said, you know, you say yes. Oftentimes we say yes and then go, oh, dang, now I have to do it. Right. <laughs> you know? It's like, yes. okay, I've said yes, <laughs> now I have to do this. Basically saying yes, being true to yourself. And I mean, it is a strong community for me. And I did not always have that. I, for a long time, I felt like I was utterly on my own and torturing myself until my divorce and everything else happened. I was in such a dark place. And then I found something that worked for me, which is a very strong community that, you know, we can call each other and say, I am crazy. Please help. That's how I do it. I know right now, one of my biggest challenges is I'm starting to be seen a lot more for TV and film. And it's taken me a really long time to figure out the differences. I think I was doing a lot of things wrong for a while. What do you think is the biggest difference, if you could put it in a sentence, between your TV acting and your stage acting and how you're able to do both of them successfully? Yeah, I think it's um, it's technical. It's a technical thing. It's the same preparation, and then it's a technical difference. So you just don't do anything. <laughs> you know, one stop. You're prepared. Now just say the words. I did this soap opera, One Life to live for a few months and there was another Tony Award winner on it. First day on the on the soap we shot 147 pages. Now an ambitious day in a movie is 12 pages. An ambitious day for TV is 15 pages. 20 pages is a lot. And here I am 147 pages. I'm not at all 147 but that's the day. And I'm like her name was Patricia. I'm like Patricia how do you do this? <laughs> She says, Katie, you open your mouth and trust that you're talented. <laughs> Say the lines and trust that you're talented, which was some of the best advice because I've, I've since been in classes with other theater or on camera and watching them help me go, oh, yeah, just don't do anything. Like in TV, it's much more you're either right for the role or you're not. You know, they're either going to want you or they don't. Like it's not personal. It's very much you just speak and if you are well prepared it's just smaller it's just don't do anything just don't do so much and learning when you're in close-up learning when you're in half you know learning when you're in the master shot learning when you're in a two shot it's just technically for me i always picture the camera as my proscenium so in sort of understanding where i am in, in relation to the proscenium and if the proscenium needs to shoot the back of my head that's important too. 
you know, so if the proscenium is behind me, I can't just lean into the shot, you know, I can't talk with my hands, I can't, you know, there's things that you just don't do. So it's just technical and learning how to hit your mark and what's a close up, what's a two shot, what's a master. In the master, you can move a bit more, but then once you get down to that close up, if you twitch, it's like, boom, it's so big. So you learn how to contain all that wonderful theater preparation that we do. You know, my favorite actors, Meryl Streep, Allison Janney, I mean, I could go on and on, are from theater. There's no reason theater people can't do it. Sara Ramirez on television is like, I just think she's amazing. If there's no reason we can't do it, we just learn how to do it a little bit differently. Just a little bit differently. But it's just technical. It's learnable. Now that I'm finally, I feel like it's taken me years to just figure out, to trust myself and to realize that I don't have to do as much it's learnable. I'm finally, I feel like learning it. But I think also that has to do, we talked about earlier about aging and being comfortable with your age. I'm oddly more comfortable with myself than I have been. So I'm yeah. not trying to be that young understudy that wants to take over the, the role and be a star and all that stuff on Broadway. Right now, I'm like, I just want to exist. And, and I just feel like all of a sudden, because I'm more comfortable, I'm more comfortable in front of a camera. Absolutely. And I'm no longer thinking I can convince them that I can play a short Chinese lady. You know, it's like, I can't convince anybody of that. But back when you're young, you're thinking, oh, if I just wear the right thing and I do, I can be anything. It's like, no, I am. I am. And and every once in a while, they'll see something special and go, mm, you know, there's another part that she's really much more right for. Let's give her that one. Yeah, we just accept ourselves more. It's more acceptance of yourself. Knowing that it's not personal is yeah. hard, but it really helps. And to be happy for your friends who get the job. Yes, yeah, It's you know. a lonely place if you can't be happy for somebody else. As we started the podcast, and I will end it as well, like you are a support team for so many people. You are very well loved and talk about just your kindness. So thank you so much. You're going to make me cry again. Love your long, incredible career and life. If there was a moment that you just would be like, I'm so proud of that moment. What sticks out? Uh, it's a story I, I think of a lot. There's a, a woman who I was auditioning. They had one role role they needed to to cast in Jerome Robbins Broadway and I went to this I guess it was probably a principal equity call or whatever it was and god I had a ball you know I mean dancing Jerome Robbins choreography was a thrill singing doing all this stuff and there was this woman who was uncomfortable with the choreography and I taught it to her you know I, I said here like let's do it she was concerned because she was going to have to leave early and I said no you're just you're exactly right for this part don't worry about it just you know tell them you need to go and I I taught her years later. I, I don't remember this. I don't remember it. But years later, we worked together. She said, you know, Katie, you, you got me that part in Jerome Robbins Broadway. I'm like, what are you talking about? She goes, you were so nice. You, you taught me the choreography. You made sure that I felt comfortable and, and I got the part. I'm like, that made me cry again. I'm like, you're kidding me. It makes me happy because she was much more right for the part than I was. You know, she was who should have gotten it. And she was so nervous and uncomfortable. I mean, dance to me was cinch. Choreography, I could learn in an instant. You know, you can't keep something until you give it away. That's what you're doing now with your teaching and that's where what we evolve into is giving away what we have been so fortunate to get in our lives. So that's always a story that sticks out to me that I that she thought to thank me and that 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 was how she thought of me. Well, that's how I think of you as well. <laughs> yeah, the waterworks. I'm going to play a song at the end of your interview for the credits. What song right now 
would you say is important in your life that you feel represents you? Life is just a bowl of cherries. Any specific singer? Loretta Devine in Big Deal. Fantastic. I'm going to go download that and listen to that right now. I don't think it's out there, but I, I have sung the song many times and then Valerie Pettiford sang it in Fosse, but it's it's Loretta in Big Deal. That just That's right. Live and laugh at it all. You can't take the dough when you go, go, go. Fantastic. Well, thank you so much for this incredible interview. It, it was such a pleasure. Brad, this is awesome. Congratulations on everything. It sounds like life is, you know, only going up and forward and interesting. And uh, God bless you. God bless. I was unable to find a recording of Loretta Devine, but here is a recording of Katie Huffman live at Joe's Pub. But the opening of it was uh, Loretta Devine in this wonderful strapless black velvet gown on standing on the top of this scaffolding and this pin spot would come on her and she would sing this song. Life is just a bowl of cherries. Don't take it serious. Life's too mysterious. You work, you save, you worry so, but you can't take the dough when you go, go, go. So keep repeating, it's the berries, the strongest oak must fall. Just a bowl of cherries. So live and laugh at it all. Life is just a bowl of cherries.